We have been out of our series in Romans for the last several weeks. So today we return to our walk through this great book. Would you please turn your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 5. I want to kind of do a quick reset of where we are and what we are thinking as we go through Romans. I also want to repeat my initial encouragement to you about this study. I want to encourage you to go deep into the study. Uh, I want to encourage you to read the book of Romans many times. My goal has been to read the book of Romans each week that I preach through, from the book of Romans. It's about, uh, it's about an hour to read through the book of Romans. And so it's, you could do it in four 15-minute segments in your week. Um, read it maybe from a different translation, a reliable translation that you may be less familiar with to help you to grasp it and see it freshly. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. It's a book that will change your life. Romans is the sixth book of the Christian New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul to converts who were both Jews and Gentiles who had faith in Jesus Christ. Paul hadn't yet been able to come and to visit them at Rome, but he was planning to come. He was, he was planning a trip to go to Spain and that he hoped to stop there at Rome on his way to Spain and to see them. He mentions that at the beginning of the book. He mentions it again at the end of the book, I believe in chapter 15. This letter is a doctrinal masterpiece on the gospel of Jesus. So we have kind of given it this description. The undeserved, unmatched, unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul walked us through that. For the sake of organizing our thoughts of our study, we have divided it into six divisions. The priority of the gospel of Jesus. And there in the first 17 verses of the book, we notice that the gospel, for a true Christian, the gospel is at the center of a Christian's life. The gospel is available to the world. The gospel is that kind of a priority. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. That is a priority of the gospel. The second part of the, of the epistle is the heart of the gospel. This is where Paul explains to us what it is to understand what the gospel really is. Paul explains to us that we need a righteousness in order to see God, in order for us to have life eternal. We need a righteousness that isn't ours. We need a righteousness that we don't possess. We need God's righteousness. And so he walks us through the end of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4. And he describes that righteousness of God. How God's righteousness is revealed from, from his wrath. For the righteousness of God is revealed from the wrath. His wrath is upon all of us because of our sin. God's righteousness, it reigns with justice. It's not for the Jews only. It's not for the circumcised only. The blessing is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. For Jew and for Gentile, with God, he shows no partiality. He reigns, his righteousness reigns with justice. His righteousness is received by faith. And really this is unfolded all the way through chapter 4. It's not a righteousness that we don't have God's righteousness because of our works. We don't have our right, God's righteousness because of our gender, because we could earn it, because of circumcision or because of anything else. God's righteousness is not earned. It's, a, it's received by faith. And Paul walked us through 
Abraham and all that it meant that he received God's righteousness by faith. God's righteousness comes to man by faith alone in Christ alone. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 5. Well, we've already started working into there. You see at the beginning of chapter 5 it says, Therefore. And so that's where Paul kind of hinges, makes a little bit of a turn, and goes into that third section of his epistle, talking about the assurance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at the beginning of chapter 5, and, and this, this idea of the assurance of the gospel goes all the way through the end of chapter number 8. If you look at verse number 16 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end, the promise might be sure or guaranteed to all the seed. So it's almost as if Paul takes that idea of, of a guaranteed faith, of a guaranteed justification, and expands on it in, in chapters 5 through chapter 8. Paul wants us to understand that our salvation is full and final. It's guaranteed. So the assurance of the gospel is seen as we have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. The assurance of the gospel is seen as it's revealed to us that we have access to God. Chapter 5, verse 2. And then today, we see the assurance of the gospel as we have joy in God through suffering. Would you follow along now as I read from Romans chapter 5? beginning at verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, Knowing that tribulation works or brings about patience. And patience brings about experience and experience hope. And hope makes us not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, someone even dare to die. But God commends or shows or demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, shall we be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. Peace with God. Access to God. Now in verses 3 through 5, joy in God. We have assurance because we are able to rejoice in sufferings. Another assurance of our justification is the way in which our faith allows us to handle trouble. I was thinking about this uh, this week, and I was thinking about this Russian doll representing us being justified by God, just being justified before God, that we have been justified by our faith, 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only have we been justified by God, by, by, by faith, we also have peace with God. We have peace with God. We sinners have peace with God. But not only do we have peace with God, there's more to it than that. We also have access to God. We can come boldly, we can come directly to our God. But Paul says in verses 3 through 5, more than that, we also can have joy in God, even in the midst of our suffering. It's just one gift after another, all wrapped up in our justification by faith. Christian, these verses grant assurance to you because of how your faith allows you to handle trials. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian yet, you don't have that assurance. You're forced to, to deal with your struggles and trials of this life by running from hardship, fighting the trials, or, or some other way, but you do not have the benefit of being assured of your status with God in the midst of your trials. I encourage you to hear this morning from God's Word how you can have that assurance. Now, honestly, Paul's claim here in, in verse 3 that we rejoice in our sufferings has a degree of surprise to it, doesn't it, at first reading? He says, and more than that, or not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. I think it's kind of difficult to think of something more unnatural than enjoying tribulation. I mean, when I get up in the middle of the night and go check on the bad guys who are never there, um, when I'm up in the middle of the night and doing that, and just being transparent here, when I stub my toe or when I step on one of those Legos, I don't, my, my initial reaction is not, praise the Lord, here's another opportunity in the midst of pain shooting up my leg to just be thankful in this opportunity. What a blessing. I'm not thinking that at all. I mean, who naturally enjoys pain, sorrow, discomfort, grief, hardship at any level? Especially as Americans, we jump through all kinds of hoops to avoid all levels of trials. Paul is not saying then that suffering is to be pleasurable. Paul is saying since we have been justified by faith, even hardships can be occasions for joy. But how? Why? Here's the main idea. For God's children, suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious. Because it reminds us that He loves us. That He will end it. And that He is with us through it. For God's children, suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious, but it, because it reminds us that He loves us, that He will end it, the suffering, and that He is with us through it. This morning, before we come to the table, we'll note the reality of joyful suffering, the reason of joyful suffering, and the enablement to joyfully suffer. First, the reality of joyful suffering. Again, verse 3 says, and not only so,
but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Since we have been justified by faith, we have access to God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then verse 3 says, not only that, there's more. We also rejoice in God through our suffering. That word there, but we glory in tribulation. It means boasting. It means rejoice. To have joy in God. To shout with excitement. Suffering is part of the Christian life. The pages of Scripture are full of the theme of suffering. Jesus spoke of it often. He said in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. And then He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's example after example in the New Testament of, of, of suffering. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Some may think that God's children should have fewer than average number of tribulations. But the reality of suffering with joy is that Christians are more likely to have troubles than anyone else. It's talking about afflictions. It's talking about trials, suffering, pressures, stresses, difficulties. Maybe it's mental. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's psychological. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's medically, physically. It could be a variety of things, but it's suffering. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will suffer. To rejoice in suffering, to have suffering as a reality. But what does that mean? James Montgomery Boyce, pastor from Philadelphia many years ago, had two helpful clarifications. He says, first, it's, it's not Epicureanism. In other words, uh, it's, it's life is, is an inevitable, they believe that life is an inevitable mix of good and bad experiences. So the bad experiences in life are unavoidable, so load up life with more pleasure than pain to obtain a better bottom line. Sure, life has vegetables, but life also has sweet tea and ice cream. So have as much sweet tea and ice cream as you can to help balance out the bottom line. That's not what Paul's saying here when he's talking about rejoicing and suffering. It's also not stoicism. It's, he's, I have to have a stiff upper lip. I'm going to grin and bear it. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and get through this trial because, bless God, I'm a Christian. That's not what he's talking about either. Further, it's not a mere resignation that we're called to. It's not an Eeyore mentality. Oh, well, I'm a Christian Suffering is part of being a Christian, so I better just endure and hang on for the ride. No. Paul wants us to understand the opportunity of suffering for Christians. Trials do not stop the blessing of us having peace with God. Trials do not stop our access to God. Trials do not hinder what God is doing. 
On top of all of that good news, and more than that, the sufferings are actually an occasion for joyful boasting. We're not called to put up with trials. We're called to rejoice because of our sufferings. Christian, the reality is you are going to suffer. That's the reality of your faith. It's not an exception. It's the norm. It looks different for each of us. The variables, it's going to vary in degrees and and sources and timing of suffering. There are dozens of variables. But the reality, the constant, is that children of God will suffer in this life. So remember that for God's children, suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious. Because suffering reminds us that God's, God loves us, that He's going to put an end to it, and that He is with us through it. So that's the reality. Christians will suffer. There's a second aspect of, of suffering that Paul shares, and that's the reason of our suffering. Look again at verse 3. He says, not only that, but we glory in tribulations, knowing, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope does not put us to shame. This is a call to have a joyful pride in what God has given to us. Not the trial that he's given to us, but the assurance that he gives to us through the trial. But how does that happen? The key is found in that word knowing, in verse, uh, verse number 3. Not only so, but glory and tribulations also, knowing. We know something as God's children. We rejoice in suffering because it's an opportunity to experience complete assurance that God is going to deliver us from all suffering. The reason why Christians can glory in tribulation is that we know the process of suffering and we know how that process concludes. We can rejoice in sufferings because we know how it ends. We know the end of the story. In James chapter 1, we read, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We rejoice in our suffering because we understand what suffering does, how suffering ends. Joy in affliction is possible because we understand that affliction yields something beautiful. Affliction, suffering of of any degree in any way, matures us. It gives us muscle for our souls. So Paul outlines this little process. He says that in verse number three, he says, we know that tribulation works patience. I think a better word there would be endurance. Tribulation, trials, sufferings, it works, it produces, I think other, other translations say it, produces endurance. To stay under pressure, to continue enduring, to persevere through it, not trying to escape the trial, but persevering, enduring through the trial. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, no, no temptation or trial or means of suffering has overtaken you that is common to man. 
God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond your ability. But with the trial, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Here it is, that you may be able to endure it. The process involves us enduring. Christian, in the middle of your suffering, be reminded that endurance is part of the process. It's part of God's plan. Your endurance and suffering through the trial is part of God's plan to give you assurance that you belong to Him. Endurance goes on. He says, tribulation works endurance, and endurance produces experience. Really, that's talking about someone's character. It's talking about someone being tested, somebody being approved. Suffering leads to endurance, then endurance, through endurance, we are developed in our character. Characters formed through the hardships of suffering. Again in James chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to all those who love him. Someone is tested or approved only after they have endured. You see, their character is developed as a result of having endured the trial. After a year of lockdown in Peru, missionary Kelly Cross reflects on the lessons that God has taught her. She says, I am forever changed from the ways God worked in my life. God revealed a lot of not-so-good attitudes in my heart that I might have never seen without the lockdown. She says, I'm continuing to learn immediate gratitude. My first reaction to trials was, was usually frustration, complaining, whining, whenever the power went out, which can be a common occurrence. My first reaction was usually, ugh, not again. But then I would remember, oh wait, it's okay. God's got this, and I can still be thankful. She says, I need to be living my life in a manner of gratitude, so that I'm constantly seeing how good God is. And then she says, recently my, the power randomly went out while we were eating breakfast, and my initial response was, thank God that it went out during the day so we still have sunlight to see. She concludes, I was encouraged realizing that God doesn't give up on us, even in the habits that seem we'll never be able to change. We fail over and over, but God is faithful to forgive. And God is so good. Amen. Kelly's growth in character didn't come with as, a, as, a, as a, like a flip of a light of a switch. Her character changed, her growth came as a result of enduring the trial. Christian suffering develops your character. And it's not just that we want to have character for character's sake, but character is part of God's process to assure you that you belong to him. Paul continues telling us about this, this process, and he says, character produces hope. This is a, this is a forward thinking in, on, on the timeline of life. It's, he's thinking about the day of final judgment that, 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 uh, that we will see. And on that day, when we deserve to face God's wrath, we won't. Our hope in Christ will not disappoint us or put us to shame. No Christian ever will, will ever be ashamed of putting their faith in Jesus. We see this is true from the converse, right? Anytime we put our hope or our trust in something or someone other than Christ, we're disappointed. 
we're ashamed. But putting our hope in Christ is never disappointing. I was speaking with our dear brother Kurt Taylor this week. He fell, as I mentioned earlier. He's recovering in a rehab facility. He was reflecting on this, uh, in that conversation. He was reflecting on 92 years of, of life and decades of, of marriage to Jenny, who passed away a little over a year ago. And in that conversation, he just kept repeating the hope that one day soon all suffering will be finished. Physically, completely healed. Relationally, completely reunited. Spiritually, fully glorified. There was no hint of discouragement in our brother's voice as he pondered the present. Rather, his speech was saturated with hope as he looked to the future. Christian, however you are suffering this morning, be reminded of this truth. This is not the end. If you have relationships that stink right now, or a body that is diseased, or breaking down in some way, if you have a bank account that is too low, if you have a soul that is discouraged, be reminded of this foundational truth. This is not the end. As you watch the news and you try to discern what is true or what is false, as you consider the suffering of your family or your extended family and friends, as you feel the weight of the darkness all around you in this world, be reminded of this foundational truth. This is not the end. It's only part of the journey. We rejoice in suffering because of what we know. We know that suffering enables us to endure and that endurance produces character and character produces hope because this is not the end. For God's children, suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious because it reminds us of His love for us. It reminds us that He's going to put an end to all of our suffering and it reminds us that He is with us through the suffering. So Paul makes plain the reality that the Christian will suffer. Paul explains the process of joyful suffering and then he points us to the enablements of joyful suffering. Verse 5. And hope makes not a shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. How in the world do we endure? How are we able to rejoice in our sufferings? Part of the answer is to know the process, but another part is explained there in verse 5 because of how we have been enabled. You can read through Fox's Book of Martyrs to find men and women who were not ashamed. It is their hope that they saw so clearly that it enabled them to, to die with joy. They were able to, they were sure of their hope, and so they were, they were sure they had been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and so they rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God. And they were certain of it. They could smile at those who were about to murder them. We will be ready for the final day of judgment and not experience shame. 
not only based on our academic acknowledgement of God's love or even our understanding of God's demonstration on the cross, but we will be ready for that final day because of a subjective certainty that God does love us. Christian, we are enabled to rejoice in sufferings. God uh, makes it possible. He enables us. He equips us with two elements. God's love and God's spirit. God's love has been shed abroad, or some translations say poured into our hearts. It's not just talking like, okay, a little bit of God's love is important to our hearts. It's talking about extravagance, profusion, lavish outpouring to the point of overflowing, immeasurable torrents of God's love have been poured into our hearts. How about we say that this little communion cup represents our hearts and that God's love has been poured into our hearts. And we could say that this water presents the love of God. God doesn't just pour His, His love into our hearts a little bit and give us a little bit of His love. No, God pours His love into our hearts. And He doesn't just fill it up to, to the top like, okay, that's enough love for you. No, go. God pours His love into our hearts. He inundates us with his love for us. That is how God sheds abroad, pours his love into our hearts. R.C. Sproul said, God pours his love for us into our souls to such a degree that even if the rest of the world hates us, we can know that he loves us and that he has given us hope that we will never, ever be ashamed. What enables you and me to rejoice in sufferings is the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love is a demonstrative love. We'll shuck that corn next week when we get to chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, that God commends or shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God's love is not only demonstrative, it's subjective. It's a certainty that God loves us. The first element to enable you to rejoice in suffering is God's love. The second element enabling to us is His Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us an abundant confidence in God's love for us. The Holy Spirit uh, enables a Christian to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, he tells us in Ephesians. Our spiritual security is not found in our individual ability to live a godly character. Rather, our spiritual security is found in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to live a godly life. Only God can make us godly. We can't make ourselves godly. Note the beauty of this Trinitarian assurance. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God the Father through God the Son, and we have been given God the Holy Spirit to live in us. The key to this verse is to take note of the past and the present enabling. God, God's love has been poured into our hearts, and God's love continues to be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love wasn't finished at the cross. It's ongoing God is loving you today, Christian. God is loving you right now. And so for this water illustration to, to, be, to be perfect or to, 
to, to, to be more accurate, the pitcher, the, water, the, the pitcher of water would never run out. It would just be a continued gushing of God's love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. This is the climax of the assurance theme in these verses. God's love is present, a present time reality. So I ask, what else do we need if we have the love of God? You may not have all your bills paid. We may not have perfect good health. We may not have a stellar marriage. We may not have straight A's in our classes. We may not be trouble free. But if we have the love of the almighty triune God being poured constantly into our hearts, what else do we need? That's precisely how we are enabled to rejoice in our sufferings. For God's children, suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious because it reminds us that He loves us, that He's going to end the suffering one day, and that He is with us through it. Christian, I don't know, I know a lot of what's going on in a lot of people's lives at Harvest Bible Church, but I don't know the depths of suffering that you are dealing with maybe even right now today. But I do know that God has promised to pour his love into your heart through his spirit. There are a lot of variables in the equation of Christian suffering. Circumstances, relationships, timing, all of that changes. But there's one constant that will never disappoint. Jesus Christ. So as you suffer, don't place all of your hope in a human relationship, although those can be helpful. As you suffer, don't place all your hope in circumstances changing to alleviate you of suffering, although that may happen. As you suffer, place all your hope in Jesus Christ. So suffering is not only painful, it's also glorious because it gives us assurance that we belong to God that this is normal for his children, that he put an end to all suffering, and that he has loved us and given us his spirit. If you don't have that assurance, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a child of God, I encourage you to ask us. Talk with us after the service. Contact us this week. We invite you to become a child of God, to have your faith in Jesus Christ, who gave you peace, who gives peace to God, peace with God, access to God, and even joy in times of suffering. For Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. He endured great suffering. He put an end to the, the payment of sin as he endured suffering for our sake. This is what we remember now as we come to the table. We remember the suffering that Christ endured for us in order that one day we would not be put to shame. Let's contemplate the one who suffered the greatest suffering as he hung on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin, even though he had never committed sin himself. Would you stand with me in preparation for the table and let's sing together, Alas, and did my Savior bleed.